1: Let's bring in Lisa Shalit, shall we? Morgan Stanley, Wealth Management Chief Investment Officer. Great to see you, Lisa. At this valuation at around $80 billion, I believe this tops out the last funding round for Uber. And the funding rounds in private markets for many of these companies have been absolutely fantastic for the companies. And it's where a lot of the growth has been as well. Just how much has changed in the last couple of decades?
2: Oh, look, I, I think everything has changed. And, and it, a lot of it has to do with how much dry powder sits in the private markets. And the allure of going public is not what it used to be. And so, you know, once upon a time in in the in the early '90s, leading up to 1999, you had companies that you know wanted to access capital through the public markets. You know, literally a year, two years into their existence. Now we're looking at companies you know that are waiting at least a decade uh, to go public. And there's many other ways for them to fund uh, those early rounds. And it's a sheer Function of of how developed uh, private uh, fundraising is.
1: So, Lisa, is that a good thing? Is that a healthy prospect for public markets? The fact we've got a little bit more history that these companies aren't as young. Uh,
2: So, look, that's a fantastic positioning. On the one hand, you know, certainly we have a lot more uh, historical financial data uh, to look at in these S ones in many cases. Uh, But look, I think it it has hurt. Um, in many cases, some of these companies, because the, the public markets are very, very, very disciplining. Uh, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this new round of unicorns actually yeah, does A, a, it, lack, in, a under
1: lack of scrutiny. A lack of discipline, Tom, perhaps a story of Uber over the last several years under previous management.
0: Yeah, I I mean, there's a PayPal announcement, the stub deal with PayPal, which is interesting in itself. But Lisa, let's talk about a broader thing. You said something earlier that is profound, that with the caution of Morgan Stanley, you have a 1999 caution on technology. That bears discussion. Color that for us when you speak with Michael Wilson and the rest of your team
2: yeah so look as we start to look at the valuations um there are a set of things that we're looking at we're looking at uh, you know, the sector relative to all other sectors, we're looking at the dispersion between growth stocks and value style stocks uh, that looks very 1999 to us. Uh, we're looking at uh, how concentrated, uh, you know, some of the uh, gains are starting to be uh, in these, um, you know, uh, supposedly unassailable business models. But as we know, yeah. uh, no business models in a, in a capitalist oh, really? world are ever unassailable.
0: I mean, John, that's a key phrase, Uber is- is unassailable business model, which is how you get to the valuation you're talking about.
1: Did you see the front page of The Economist last week? No, I missed it. Oh, it, it was Excuse fantastic. It was, it was a group of ponies, call them donkeys, with plastic horns attached to their heads, <laughs> um, referring to some of these unicorns that were coming to market. Yes, how fantastic. many of them are just donkeys dressed up as unicorns, Lisa? Because they're really not as rare anymore. This concept of unicorn with a market cap of a billion, I mean, that is nothing these days, is it?
2: That's correct. It—it it, it is nothing. And, and, again, that's another one of these things that begins to smack of 1999 where everyone, you know, uh, tries to put a label on themselves when, uh, you know, they're not very special. And we all know that they're likely not going to be here, um, you know. Yeah. 10, 20 years from now. Can, can I make a,
0: a non-technical statement that 39 days in, Lyft is yet to find a bid? It's sitting on support, Khalid, you know, it's an editorialization, but it's 56.34. Well, I don't know if you're editorializing. I think you're just reading the price bid. out. It's been, it's, it's it's been pretty ugly.
1: So Lisa, let's talk about that. You can have a big name come to market. Looks like they're trying to get in first. Is that to the advantage or disadvantage of the person that comes next? if that company isn't performing well in public markets in the first couple of weeks?
2: Yeah, look, so certainly, uh, you know, the way we've seen the performance of of some of these stocks, uh, you know, presents challenges, right? Because it raises questions for prospective investors. Um, they're wondering, um, you know, hey, is this the last bid? Am I the last guy in? Um, so there's all these kinds of questions that always get asked. But look, you know, these things settle out and uh, I'm sure the ride sharing uh, ones will too.
1: Elisa, one thing I've heard a lot over the last couple of years is just secular growth stories. We want exposure to the secular growth stories. The truth is that some of these companies haven't been around long enough to really understand the cyclicality of them as well. Do you? worry about that argument to buy a stock as a secular growth story when it's never really had a cyclical test?
2: Absolutely. And I I would go further. Um, You know, one of the things that has made us uh, cautious is that the last decade uh, has been a magical, magical time uh, for companies uh, who uh, want to be growth oriented and want to raise capital. And that is because the cost of capital has been so low. Uh, and the Fed has basically had everybody's mm. back for a decade. Uh, and you know what we always say is, look, at the end of the day, return on capital does matter. Um, are you really going to be mm-hmm. profitable in a world uh, where the cost of capital looks more like 4, 5, 6 right. than 2? <clears throat>
0: And now for Global Wall Street, your clinic of the day on the income statement, and this goes with the gentle lady from Brown University who did better than good at dynamics and mathematics and economics. The conflation of variable and fixed cost to me Literally, I could write a book on it. It's that important in the mistakes I've made over the years. Discuss in technology, in the unicornisms that John's talking about, how variable costs all of a sudden become fixed costs.
2: Yeah, so Tom, you know, I think that this is the the conundrum for most uh, analysts in the current environment. Uh, the question is, if you have... Uh, or you believe that you've got a concept that has a unique platform, if you will. Oh, very nice. Um, uh, you know, the, the key question is, um, what is really the cost of acquiring a new subscriber, a new user, a new uh, participant, a new viewer, whatever you want to mm-hmm. call them? Uh, what is the marginal cost of that? Um, and at what point do you actually uh, make money? I think one of the things that we've seen is for a lot of these uh, platforms, the cost to continue to grow the platform. Platform and the cost of acquisition yeah. of a new user subscriber, whatever, um, is still actually not yeah. "quote unquote" scaling. So, what you really want to understand is what right. are the true fixed costs and what is that inflection right. point at which you start to scale and actually drop incremental profit to the see, bottom she line. She put the
0: dreaded S word in there, scale as well. <laughs> she, she can. She can leave now, Lisa Shelley. Lisa, thank, thank you. you. Thank Good to you. See thank you. you. Thank you so much with Morgan Stanley Wealth Managers. got George Borey with us who can advance the discussion right now on the nominal
1: and the real yield. He joins us from Wells Fargo, the head of fixed income research. George, good morning to you. Good morning. It has been such an interesting week. Yes. Where we've had both dollar strength and yet we've also simultaneously had a two-year treasury that has rallied, a yield that has gone lower. So I'm trying to understand... The dynamic that takes the two-year yield lower, one, and then two, how we end up with a weaker dollar in that environment. Yeah, no, there's a real stronger dollar. There's rather. a real
3: conundrum in the bond market, and you know, it, it's it's a str- it's a it's a challenge to kind of perfectly square it all up. I mean, I think there are some diverging trends here that are that are really important, and you know, the sort of the front end of the curve. You know, first off, at the very front end has, has a rate cut still priced into it, and I think the two-year it kind of gets pulled down by those expectations, which the market is not willing to kind of give up on. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, sort of the, d- the data is, is, is starting to look, uh, look reasonably, um, you know, look, looking reasonably healthy. Today's, um, you know, GDP report is expected to be roughly at around a little under two and a half percent, I think is where the 2.3, something 2.3 like that. 2.3 here. Yeah, win, yeah. 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 And, and so, you know, and, and you have, you know, inflation at just under two. So there's a very big difference when you have, you know, kind of nominal growth in the, let's call it, you know, just over four uh, percent, and you have nominal yields at two point five percent. That's there's a big divergence there, and I think the bond market is you know kind of needs to reconcile it. The, the main anchor, like what keeps us there, is simply the Fed. You know, the Fed not only went dovish but also talked about uh, reducing or, or terminating or completing, I should say, uh, their bond. Uh, you know, sort of the, the the shrinkage of the balance sheet, and 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 on top of that, you know, other governments around the world are very actively involved in managing their own uh, bond market and bond supply so there's a there's a lot of tension in the technicals yeah which
1: which really weighs on the market well we're talking about the nominal yield let's talk about the real yield the price of inflation so inflation running in and around two percent in america we have real yields yes. in america so i just wonder to what degree the foreign money now looks at the american situation yes. the adjustment in nominal yields and says you know what on a hedge basis i'm not getting the bang for my buck that i used to yep. i need to come in naked so now we get this move in treasuries where you get yields lower but also get a stronger dollar because of the flow dynamic is that a story here that is a
3: that is a very significant story i think the the search for real yield is a global story and you know we look at our own flows we see our own data both you know kind of the uh, proprietary data as well as kind of the data you can measure within the market and and it shows that that non-us investors are flooding into the u.s The, the reach for yield it's a global phenomenon okay. and and that puts powerful downward pressure on on US yields and it pushes the dollar right. up and and we see we see you know, sort of your average investor in Europe or, chi- or or in Asia, maybe Japan, who are buying dollars on an unhedged basis. Mm-hmm. That's a major shift in behavior over the last six months. So let's
0: squeeze in here the x-axis as well. With part of this enthusiasm, are we by nature going to increase duration and maturity? Is our time vision mm-hmm. of those yields going to get longer and longer?
3: I think there are different buyers in the market. For the overseas buyer who's coming into the U.S. just trying to grab yield, I think there's a desire to stay as short on the yield curve as you Mm -hmm. possibly can. So those investors are not natural buyers of 30-year or long-duration bonds. And so maybe that front-end rally in the two-year is just simply overseas money coming into the U.S., reaching out to the two-year point of the curve and being happy to kind of sit there. Whereas a domestic U.S. investor has to really think about kind of the duration profile, how that matches up against their liabilities, and what is the, the total nominal yield combined with the liabilities they're actually investing against mm-hmm. you know the, the, all these things kind of converge and, and it's it's about the relative change or the relative right. difference in demand between each of these buyers the, the most right. recent uptick are the
1: foreign buyers coming back into the US they've been largely on and the this, sidelines and this and this George for, for me is where mistakes are made when you try and take signal com- from the treasury curve yeah. but actually the dynamic that is driving the signal is is not what you think Yep. It looks like a bull steepener. It looks like it is a story of rate cuts around the corner. There's something else there, George. I'm a big believer in... The signal, it, it the drivers of the signal can very much be debated.
3: But when a curve steepens, it changes investor behavior. The knock-on consequence of a steep curve or a flat curve is very material. When when yield right. curves steepen, that encourages uh, risk seeking for the most part, and when they're flattening, yeah. it, 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 it inhibits that because a, a typical bond investor, you know, wants as much kind of carry and roll down. So okay. the typical drivers of return. I'm getting off piste here a little. But those are the main drivers for a fixed income okay. investor. George Bory, hey, thank you so fantastic. much with Wells, thank Wells Fargo.
0: Thank you. We've got a wonderful guest here to really give serious perspective on technology in this 2019. But first, John. You know the mail Uber no Amazon no the two-year yield no Ajax the mail the the, the People mailbox. not happy pa- I, I, okay it's... you clean your sink with Ajax I right? know that's why I James called Barton it Ajax
1: Bank of America writes in on Twitter Ajax now I've heard it all from Tom Keen it's Ajax the football team of Amsterdam okay. can it be
0: yeah but it's Bayer Bayer
1: Adidas, no, 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 Adidas? no, that's, that's not one of those things. It's not one of those things. <laughs> no. I can't call it No, it's just, no, that's not okay. one of those things. <laughs> thank you for it's, listening over. It's not over a tomato-tomato situation. Oh, okay,
0: I'll give you a tomato. <laughs> uh, thank you over at Bank of America and, and five other places for your brutal your brutality this morning eileen burbage is is really interesting and twisted within the study of technology because she's not only looking at a more tactical plan of a given company but also the underlying strategies within the process of technology and also the financial of technology she joins us now from london and passion capital eileen if you were to write an essay right now on the new technology of all these IPOs, what would be your single message?
4: Wow, you're always asking me great questions if you're not talking about sports or cricket, Tom. <laughs> if I was going to write message, I think there's two <laughs> ways to look at it. Firstly, I would talk about some of these IPOs that are coming out, as we know, in direct listings, right? So Slack has filed a direct listing as opposed to um, a traditional IPO. But then I guess your other question or the real question is, what technology um, sort of trends are driving these companies and their growth? And I would say the big essay answer on that one is cloud-based services.
0: Yeah. Well, we saw that with Amazon. I mean, there's an application of cloud and a victory for Microsoft. I believe a victory for Amazon. Goldman Sachs, Piper, they raised their targets today. Morgan Stanley reduces their Amazon target fractionally. But you're right about the cloud. Can the cloud be extrapolated over to smaller players, or is the cloud the venue of the big people?
4: I think right now it's going to be the venue and the theater for all of the big players. So as you point out, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Apple, they've all got big cloud bets. But I think what you'll see with smaller players is they can do sort of edge technologies or edge offerings for the cloud, whether it's going to be security-related, yeah. cloud-related, identity management, or other things.
0: Eileen, you're always so prepared, so I'm going to throw you a curveball on a Friday. Who buys Twitter, and why do they buy Twitter?
4: So anyone who buys Twitter is going to be wanting to bet on their ability to control uh, abusive behavior, negative messaging, uh, to appeal to advertisers, um, and thinking that that company is going to be able to increase its revenue over time. Uh, That's a pretty long bet, and it's a pretty big bet, but as long as you have people like the President of the United States continuing to do messaging on the platform, maybe it's not so um, outlandish. Yeah.
0: We've got some phone issues. We're going to leave it there. Eileen Burbage, thank you as always. I really look forward to speaking to you again at Queen Victoria's. I didn't even get to speak to Uh, to Eileen.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Do you want to know what the cheat guide is with Eileen? You don't Mm -hmm. ask about cricket. You ask about Arsenal. Oh, really?
0: right now, uh, we're going to get some um, expertise here. Megan Green with Manulife is with us right now. Megan, I don't want you to go into the minutiae of it. It's just grossly unfair. It's a big, big number, but is it a one-off number?
5: Yeah, so um, I'd say the headline's great, but if you look under the hood and kick the tires a little bit, this isn't such a positive story. The fact that inventory is in trade boosted growth most suggests that's not going to continue. So imports Um, were pulled forward last year to get ahead of the tariffs um, on China. And so we expected them to be weaker, and they should continue to be weaker on a year-on-year basis um, throughout this year. So that'll keep growth up a little bit. And then inventories, I think, were a big contributor to this report. But, of course, that just pulls demand forward as well. So as these companies are stockpiling now, over the rest of this year, they're going to have to destock, and that will be a drag on growth. Can um, yeah. we get some clarity on what's going on in terms of investment? Because the Durables orders, uh, Data X Defense and X Air were terrible in January and February, but then jumped in March. So there was a question about what the real story was and it right. from this report that actually it was pretty weak.
0: John, there's multiple columns here, but as uh, Dr. Green mentions, exports and imports, you've got nicely big export numbers and shockingly drop off import numbers, which means big positive number minus... A big, big minus number gives you a real wallop
1: there. So potentially some one-off factors driving the number. And look at how the market digests the story. So the headline number gives you that knee-jerk reaction. Treasury yields start to move a little bit higher. The dollar strengthens. Then you lift the lid of the GDP figure, and you see these potentially one-off dynamic supporting growth that could fade as the quarters progress and the year grows older. And the market starts to remove just a little bit of that optimism as the minutes pass by. But, Megan, we should reflect on the fact that this was a quarter that some people thought, would be the beginning of a recession in the United States not too yeah. long ago. It is better than was it what was expected only several months ago, isn't it?
5: Definitely. Um, I mean, January looks pretty ugly, not just for the U.S., but also for China um, and Europe. And so there was a lot of concern that this would be the year that we might go into recession. Since then, though, the data for the U.S. has improved, as has it for uh, for China in particular. Um, retail sales in the U.S. started looking better. The durable orders started looking better, which are a good metric for, um, for uh, investment. And so... Um, looking at the Bloomberg consensus forecast, I've never seen a, such a wide range as I think yeah. for this quarter. Um, but it does seem like, it, you know, this is really oh. outperformed. And I thought a recession was always pretty unlikely for this year.
0: Megan, I look at domestic final sales in the mix there. There's four or five numbers there, folks, not to have people drive off the road. And they're, you know, they're just, they're sort of tepid. And the nominal yeah. GDP comes in from 4 point, well, excuse me, from 76 to 4.9, to 4.1, and now a nominal GDP of 3.8, that really doesn't get things going. Can a Fed raise rates into a sub 4% nominal GDP?
5: Um, well, that's a good question. I think real, you know, real final sales are a great uh, indicator of what's really going on in terms of uh, consumer demand, stripping out inventories and trades. So you're looking at the right thing. Um, nominal GDP is pretty weak. Should the Fed hike into that? Um, no, not right now. Um, and that, and that's why they're on pause. But could they hike into that going in later this year if the data starts to improve? Yes, they could. And unfortunately, I think the Fed has taken any rate hike completely off the table. They've painted themselves in a corner. And I thought that yeah. was a communications disaster because as China reaccelerates, as global growth starts looking better. Uh, data in the U.S. could look better, and you know the chances of a rate hike are higher than the chances of a rate cut at this point. And it's just going to be so difficult for the Fed to do it. Um, because right. the markets, of course, will um, respond and t- uh, financial conditions will tighten and it'll make it much harder for the Fed
0: to do it. It's going to be morning in America, Megan. And the Red Sox will always play the Detroit Tigers and beat them 11 to 4. Uh, Megan, <laughs> Megan, with life folks, of course, Megan Green uh, working with the John Hancock Company up in Boston as well. Megan... Uh, if if I look at the optimism that's out there, and it has been an optimist week, our Carl Riccadonna really reemphasizing, okay, they're going to raise rates at some point. I get that. But there's a moment where somebody steps up on stage and moves away from stability. What is your experience of how the market reacts when a set of commercial bankers paint themselves into a quarter? It's going to be a brutal adjustment, Right.
5: Yeah, that's right. So because the Fed's painted itself into a corner, I'm not sure it can get rate hikes um, back on the table, even if if it should, So, even if the data um, supports it. So if that were to happen, if they were to try, the markets would respond in a pretty – violent way i think and so we could expect a lot of volatility and financial conditions would tighten massively and that's one of the feds inputs so it might it might make it impossible for them to go ahead and try
0: to don't say impossible come on at some point you know this is folks trees grow to the sky i mean right now this week in the effervescence even with some gloomy earnings reports megan there's been a whole trees grow to the sky feeling to this do they have a responsibility to come out and move the punch bowl off the table or do they just wait and wait and wait as you allude to
5: i think they're going to end up waiting for a while um but i think that they should remove some some of the uh the punch bowl um but like i said they've set themselves up for a really difficult communications challenge and that was unnecessary. Yeah. but that's where they are so I'm not sure how they're going to manage to put rate hikes back on the table without the markets um, tightening financial conditions again.
0: Neil Dutta, Renaissance uh, uh, macro, Neil Dutta, private domestic demand sluggish in Q1, rising at a smaller uh, rate. And that was a weaker rate going back six years. But, uh, you know, his theme as an optimist, and Mr. Dutta has been an optimist, is that consumer spending is likely to rebound. Megan Green, do you agree with that?
5: Uh, the consumer spending will rebound? No, I don't. I think actually consumer spending will remain fairly subdued. And that, of course, is 70% of U.S. GDP. But that doesn't mean we're going into a recession. In fact, I I think we'll still continue to grow above potential, which is around 1.75%. So I think we could expect growth of 2% for the year. That's not fantastic, but it's still above potential. And you don't need the consumer to knock it out of the park for that.
0: Very good. Megan, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate time from your Manual Life uh, clients. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.